This podcast is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. The following podcast is part two of four of Professor Hanko's series, The Doctrine of Holy Scripture. Before we get into uh, the subject that occupies our attention tonight, there are a couple of matters that we have to deal with in connection with last week's discussion and lecture. Um, One is a question that has to do with our discussion last week of the inspiration of the scriptures. You recall that I emphasized that the scriptures are infallibly inspired, verbally inspired. That prompted a couple of questions, I think interesting ones. They have to do with the explanation of a couple of verses in 1 Corinthians 7. And I'd like to have you look those up if you have your Bibles. And I'd like to make a few comments on them because they seem to indicate that on at least some occasions, the men whom God used to inspire the scriptures were given the liberty to express their own opinions. You have that first of all in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 12. I want to read just the immediate Uh, immediately preceding two verses along with it. And unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. Let not the wife depart from her husband. The apostle is emphasizing that this is the Lord's command. But, and if she depart, let her remain unmarried, or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. Then you have this verse, but to the rest, that is to the rest of the material that pertains to this given subject, but to the rest speak I, not the Lord. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and so on and so forth. So that expression But to the rest speak I, not the Lord, seems to suggest that while the Lord inspired the commands of the apostle in verses 10 and 11, here in verses 12 and 13, the apostle is expressing his own opinion. That is, however, an erroneous interpretation of that verse, and that's not the point which the apostle is making. I think we ought to be clear on what the apostle means to say here. When he says in verse 10, And unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, he adds that, not because he wants to emphasize that what he is writing is infallibly inspired, he is conscious of that throughout all of his writings, but this particular command, which he includes in these verses, comes directly from the Lord's teaching while the Lord was on earth. 
That's the point he's making. The Lord taught this during the days of his earthly ministry. When he gets to verse 12 and says, To the rest speak I, not the Lord, he means to say, The Lord did not say these things during the time of his earthly ministry, but nevertheless, what I have to say is infallibly inspired. That's assumed. The apostle, as you know, in all of his epistles, does not make a point of it that what he writes to the Galatians or the Thessalonians is infallibly inspired, even though he was well aware of it. But he means to say here, this which I now command you, though given by infallible inspiration, is not something which the Lord himself commanded during the years of his earthly ministry. That's the meaning of verse 12. Now if you go to the end of the chapter, there is something somewhat similar. Beginning to read at verse 39, The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth, but if her, if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will, only in the Lord. But she is happier if she so abide after my judgment, that is, after the judgment which he has expressed in the preceding. And I think also that I have the Spirit of God. It's that last expression that was especially the occasion for the question. The answer to that question, too, is clear enough. When the apostle says, and I think I also have the Spirit of God, he does not mean to say, I consider it a real possibility that I might have the Spirit of God, but I'm not sure. That isn't what he means to say. We use the expression, I think, in that sense sometimes. But that isn't what the apostle means to say. I may say, for example, I think that it's going to rain tonight. I don't know. Maybe it will. Maybe it won't. But I think it might. The apostle means the word think here in the sense of consider or deem it true that I have the Spirit of God. You could almost say that he means I know. But this word, as he uses it here, is even a little bit stronger than that. It's a little bit stronger than simply saying I know. It is my considered knowledge aware of how the Lord speaks through me to the churches, that I speak what I have said by the Spirit of God. That's what he means to say. It's a very strong statement of his consciousness that what he writes is by divine inspiration. So that's the interpretation of those two verses. Uh, by the way, let me underscore the importance of that interpretation as well because of the fact that this has to do with the whole subject of divorce and remarriage 
and the obligations of husbands and wives to each other under those circumstances. Second matter that I have to come back to is the question of the attributes of Scripture. We didn't have time last week to discuss those attributes, but I have to do that because a knowledge of the attributes of Scripture have much to do with our discussion tonight on the question of attacks against the Scriptures. The attacks that are made repeatedly against the Scriptures are calculated to destroy the attributes of Scripture. I'm only going to mention them very briefly and explain them in as short a time as I possibly can so that we can get on with our subject. I'm also going to mention just two or three of the main attributes. Scripture has other attributes as well. These are the main ones. In the first place, an important attribute of Scripture is the unity of Scripture. I think a couple of years ago we discussed this at some length in a series of lectures I gave on the idea of the organic conception of God's works. I talked at that time about the fact that the Scriptures are an organic whole. That means they are a unity, something denied by the premillennialists, of course, who make a division between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and therefore between Israel and the church. I'm not so much interested in that question of premillennialism tonight. What I am interested in is that you understand that the Scriptures constitute a unity. That attribute is the foundation for the fundamental rule of Scripture that Scripture interprets Scripture. If it were not for the attribute of unity, that rule of scriptural interpretation would be impossible. We're going to talk about that rule a bit more next week, the Lord willing. If I can make clear the attribute of unity, I can best do that by using a figure. You may consider the scriptures to be analogous to a very beautiful and perfect portrait, painting, if you will. The portrait is of the Lord Jesus Christ. The portrait was painted by God. The painting is so perfect that every brushstroke, in its own unique way, adds to the beauty of the whole. If you would detract just one brushstroke from the portrait, you would mar it. And you would mar it in important respects. Now, there are a couple of implications of that, of course. That means, in the first place, that Every part of Scripture is part of the portrait of Christ. 
As you know, those who support a theory of theistic evolutionism and try to make their theistic evolutionism plausible in the light of Scripture say that it doesn't matter if the first 11 chapters of Genesis are interpreted in a way that is not literal because they have nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those chapters have to do with other matters, but the gospel is untouched. You can easily harmonize modern scientific discoveries and modern scientific theories of evolution with the first chapters of Genesis, if only you will give them a mythological or a doxological interpretation or whatever. They don't touch on the gospel. That's a denial of the unity of the scriptures. The simple fact of the matter is that Genesis 1 and 2 through 11, as well as every other part of the scriptures, constitute the one portrait of Jesus Christ. God is talking about Jesus Christ in Genesis 1 and 2. That's the simple, undeniable fact of the matter. And he is talking about that because when repeatedly in Genesis 1, God himself says that he saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. He means by that, that what he created was perfectly adapted to accomplish his purpose. And his purpose is to glorify himself through Jesus Christ in the new heavens and in the new earth. There are evidences of that in Genesis 1 itself, which I won't go into tonight. Every part of scripture is part of that portrait. That means in the second place that there are parts of scripture which are, if I may put it that way without being understood, more important than other parts. Just as in a portrait, the eyes of the one of whom the painting is made are more important than the background. So are certain passages in Scripture more important than other passages as far as the revelation of God in Christ is concerned. For example, Luke 2 verse 7 and she brought forth her firstborn child and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room in the inn. The narrative of the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ is certainly more important than the first verses of First Chronicles where you have genealogies that pertain to the records of the descendants of the children of Israel. Nevertheless, even though that's the case, the portrait is perfect because of the fact that every part is there for the purpose of revealing Christ. That means, if I may once again apply this to biblical interpretation, you haven't understood a passage of Scripture unless you see how it reveals Christ. That's fundamental to your own personal study of Scripture and your meditation on the Word of God.
I, I have told this story before. Some of you may have heard it. When I was pastor here in Hope Church, not here in this building, in the old one, I was preaching a series on Elisha. And I came up to that miracle of Elisha where he caused the axe head to swim. I spent practically the whole week trying to figure out how Christ was present in there. And I couldn't do it. And so, without letting the congregation know, quickly the last minute, I slid over that particular miracle and went on to the next. I did not dare to preach a sermon on that text without showing the congregation how Christ was present in that miracle and how that miracle serves the revelation of salvation in Christ. And if you must know, I still have problems with that text. But the point is that the whole of Scripture is one because it constitutes Christ's portrait in all the fullness of his glory as in his person and in all his works. He is the revelation of Jehovah God as the God of our salvation. The second attribute of Scripture which is so crucially important and which is attacked by all those who level against the Scripture's various charges, is Scripture's perspicuity or clarity, by which is meant that Scripture is on the whole easy to understand. So easy to understand, in fact, that anyone of almost any age and of any level of education, if he possesses in his heart the Spirit of Christ, can understand the Scriptures. Now let me say a few things about that. In the first place, that does not mean that there are not difficult passages in Scripture. The prophets are difficult. Peter himself in 2 Peter 3 reminds those to whom he writes that Paul wrote difficult passages in which wicked men use the difficulty of the passages to wrest the Scriptures to their own destruction. Nor does it mean that Scripture is shallow. I think in the pamphlet was, which was distributed, I used the example of a shallow puddle on a driveway after a shower. That's maybe an eighth of an inch deep, but that is so clear you can see the pavement underneath the water. Not that way. If you want to appreciate the clarity of Scripture, then you have to take a trip to Yellowstone Park and peer into the depths of some of these hot pools in, for example, the Upper Geyser Basin. You can look into those pools and see into them, especially as your eyes become accustomed to the light, deeply, but the deep the depth to which you can see does not bring ever your range of vision to the bottom of the pool. You never see the bottom. 
Same thing is true in some of the lakes that have been formed in old volcanoes, such as Crater Lake in California. You can see many feet into the depths, but you cannot see the bottom. That's the kind of perspicuity which characterizes the scriptures. They are too deep for anyone ever to plumb their depths. In fact, anyone who is a serious student of scripture and who has spent a lifetime studying the word of God knows that with the help of the whole church of 2,000 years and with his own diligent studies, he only succeeds in penetrating into the scriptures just a little way. The scriptures are the revelation of God, who is infinite in all his being and in all his works. The scriptures are the revelation of God in human form. The scriptures themselves are not infinite in the sense in which God is. They're finite. They're a human book. But nevertheless, their finite character does not in any way give to us the ability to exhaust their meaning. This is why the scriptures are the precious treasure that they are. To me, this is one of the great proofs that scripture is authored by God. I have no idea how many times in my life I have been through the scriptures in my parents' home when I was a child and in our home in the years we have been married and raised a family. But they're always new. You always find new things. You always see something you had not seen before. There's always depths that remain unexplored. There's always truths that evade our most concentrated study. Because they speak of God. That's why Article 4 of the Belgic Confession talks about the sufficiency of the Scriptures. They're not exhaustive. They do not give us an exhaustive knowledge of God. But they are sufficient for our salvation because God is revealed in them, though in a finite way, in all the infinite glory of his own being and the majesty and power of his works. The scriptures are therefore so clear that a child who is just learning to lisp his first words in the language of his parents can understand already what the scriptures teach. What an amazing thing. So clear they are. Do you think you have to explain to a two-year-old what it means when the narrative of the birth of Christ is described? And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room in the inn. The child doesn't have to be much beyond two years old even to understand that Joseph, who was with Mary on that occasion, was not 
that child's father. And if you would ask that child, who was that child's father, that child would quickly say, God was his father. That's why Joseph could not be. child can understand that. I don't know how many books have been written about that text and about the wonder of the Incarnation. I'm sure they number in the tens of thousands. Books by learned theologians, books who have made the mystery of God become flesh the object of a lifelong study. The wonder and depths of it are far beyond our comprehension. Understandable and yet profound. That's the wonder of the scriptures. And yet, and I don't want you to misunderstand this, and yet, because of the nature of the scriptures and because of the nature of our knowledge of it, we have a complete understanding of the scriptures. Not exhaustive, but complete. I can only make that clear by using a figure. I have in my backyard a couple of rose bushes. One rose bush in particular produces, in particular produces marvelous red roses. I know that's a rose bush. I never mistake that rose bush for a dandelion. I'm able to tell the difference. Does that mean that I have an exhaustive knowledge of that rose bush? Oh, I should say not. I can't even figure out how to keep that thing from getting fungus on its leaves. Much less do I understand the intricacies and the botany and the horticulture of that rose. There are men out there somewhere who know far more about that rose than I know who can tell you all about its cell structure and tell you all about its different parts and explain to you how it reproduces and so on and so forth, all of which I am ignorant of. But there isn't a rose bush in the whole world that I don't know is a rose bush. Having seen one, I can recognize them all. And not only that, but I can enjoy it. I can enjoy that rose bush and cut off its... It's beautiful roses for my wife's vase in the house. I don't have to have an exhaustive knowledge of it in order to know it's a rose or in order to know all about the rose as it is there before my eyes. That's the nature of knowledge. That's the nature of the knowledge of the Scriptures. It isn't as if we know the Scriptures in part in the sense that we know something about one part of it, but absolutely nothing about another part of it. Our knowledge embraces the whole of the Scriptures because it's a unity clearly written by God of Christ in all the fullness of His person and works. That is the attribute of perspicuity. It is that attribute, I think, more than any other, which is under bitter and fierce attack. And in fact, that attribute goes the way of all flesh when the higher critics get finished with their 
work on the scriptures. Let me turn to that subject now. There's a little bit of history which I have to give you in order to understand where higher criticism comes from. At the beginning of the third century, no, at the beginning of the 13th century, with the publication of Dante's Divine Comedy, a movement began which later was called the Renaissance, a term with which you are all familiar. The Renaissance had these characteristics about it. In the first place, it was a revival of ancient learning, ancient Greek and Roman learning. It was a revival of the study of ancient Greek and Roman manuscripts. And it was a revival of the culture, therefore, of ancient Greek and Rome. Pagan, pagan, idolatrous, godless in every respect. In the second place, that Renaissance had as its chief characteristic what has become known as humanism. That is, that man stands in the center of the universe, not as the scriptures say, the God-created head of God's world, but the center of the universe in the sense that he has total control of it, that it is there for his own benefit, purpose, and pleasure, that he has the right to manipulate it to serve the goals which he sets for it. That's humanism. Humanism is totally man-centered. It was during the uh, flourishing of the Renaissance that God brought Reformation to Europe in the early part of the 16th century. Almost everyone identifies the Renaissance with the Reformation, except it speaks of the fact that both movements were different sides of the same coin. The Renaissance was the cultural side, the Reformation was the ecclesiastical side, but it's one basic movement. I was taught that in Calvin, books that are written by Reformed authors, such as, for example, Alfred Heimer, late professor of history in the University of Michigan, all hold to that theory. I was almost persuaded of it myself until I came into the seminary and took Reverend Uphoff's church history classes. When Reverend Uphoff began his discussion of the Reformation, he took a great deal of time pointing out to us in no uncertain terms that the Reformation and the Renaissance were two distinct movements separate from each other totally antipathetic, opposites at every point, because the one was God-centered and the other was man-centered. The principle of one was humanism, the principle of the other was 
theology. Another principle of the Renaissance was Greek and Roman classical learning, while the fundamental principle of the Reformation was sola scriptura. The principle of salvation of the Renaissance was enunciated by Erasmus, the free will of man, the Pelagianism of the Roman Catholic Church. The principle of the Reformation was enunciated by Luther. Salvation, justification, by faith alone, through grace alone. There was no possibility, as Luther learned in his break with Erasmus, of any kind of union or cooperation between the two. The Renaissance spawned modern philosophy. The early modern philosophers, and I refer particularly such men as René Descartes, a French philosopher who lived in, in the lowlands, as a matter of fact, developed that idea of philosophy along religious and spiritual lines as they sought to bring these two movements together into one. I'm not concerned whether you mention the name, remember the name Descartes or not, although one of the most destructive forces in the decline of the Reformed churches in the Netherlands was what was called Cartesianism, an introduction into the universities such as Groningen and Franeker and Utrecht and Leiden of the philosophy of Descartes. But however that may be, Descartes said that the human mind, and now I'm oversimplifying for the purposes of making it as clear as I can, the human mind is divided into two compartments. And one compartment is controlled and regulated properly by reason, while the other compartment is regulated and controlled and directed by faith. But they are separate compartments, and they must be kept distinct from each other. Now said Descartes, and our Dutch churches bought into this, swallowed it, hook, line, and sinker, to use a different metaphor, Descartes said, the union between religion and philosophy is this, that all the doctrines of religion can be proved by reason. And so he proceeded in his philosophy to prove all the doctrines of Scripture, beginning with the doctrine of God and going on to creation and all the rest, by reason. We don't need the scriptures for these doctrines. They are so reasonable, so intelligible, so rational, so much an appeal to our intellectual capabilities that if only one will think straight with this part of his head, he really doesn't need this part of his head to prove the truth of these things. That was as I hope to show in a few minutes, absolutely fatal. The Dutch churches bought into that, as did the whole of Europe. What happens when all of a sudden 
all the truths of Christianity, of the Reformation, of religion, are provable by reason. What happens? This is what happens. You lose scripture. Why? Because human reason is totally depraved. That's why. Luther didn't despise reason, but he did not want reason controlled by its own power. When he talked about the reason of the scholastics, Luther could call reason in his own inimitable way the whore of Satan. But at the same time, when he was talking about man's mind, enlightened by the Holy Spirit, in which is worked the power of regeneration, he didn't set reason and faith alongside of each other. This part of your head is reason and this part is faith. But he said reason is the handmaiden of faith. He had it right. But the church has lost that. Religion is reasonable. Religion can be proved by reason. What happens when you do that? Well, what happened in Europe, in the whole of Europe, was simply this. All right, the whole of Scripture has to be reasonable or it can't be accepted. And of course, if a man is reasonable, and you must bear in mind that about this time, science was suddenly beginning its tremendous advance. All of scientific studies were in a state of flux. Only that which meets the standards of science in the scriptures can be considered to be the truth. Only those doctrines which can be explained in the light of reason are acceptable to the rational man. And out of that developed the terrible heresy of deism. Deism rules out of order. All the miraculous, all that which cannot be explained in scientific terms, automatically, a priori, without any debate. It isn't reasonable to say that the walls of Jericho fell of themselves. It's not reasonable. Maybe an earthquake made them fall. But it's not reasonable to say they just fell. It's not reasonable to say that the Red Sea parted and stood as two walls on the sides of Israel as Israel marched through on dry ground and then came crashing down on the Egyptians and their hosts. You can't make that fit science. There isn't any scientific law which governs that kind of a phenomenon in nature. So the miraculous is not to be considered true. Same thing is true of the whole world of demons, the whole world of angels. Same thing is true of hell. Same thing is true of heaven. 
This creation, in other words, is probably created by God, says the deist, although when evolutionism dominated, then it came into existence by evolutionary processes. But God created the creation like the watchmaker made my watch. And he wound it up, and from there on, the creation runs by its own natural laws and under the impetus of its own powers that God created in it. And God is so far removed from the creation that he is not to be considered in anything that takes place in this world, except that once in a while, maybe, he intrudes in times of terrible crisis to intervene and set things right again, like a cleaning of a watch because it isn't running properly. Now, if you take that position, then you have to take the position to, how do you explain this book? How did this book come into existence? Full of miracles, with a doctrine of creation that speaks of angels and speaks of devils and speaks of heaven and speak, speaks of hell. How, how did it come into being? Well, it came into being according to natural processes. Now, before I go any further, I have to make clear to you that when we're talking about these attacks on Scripture, we're dealing with a wide spectrum of thought. If over on this end I can put the liberals who flat out deny in so many words that the Scriptures are in any sense at all the Word of God, there is a gradual process till you come over here to the so-called conservative. Who claim to hold to the infallibility of Scripture and who claim to believe in inspiration, but who are nevertheless on this line of higher criticism somewhere. Now you must understand, of course, that there are representatives all the way along. Some get pretty close to here, some are over here, and there are positions all the way in between. And I have no time nor, nor desire to go into the whole business. But it is characteristic of the far-out liberals that they deny that God had anything to do with the Scriptures at all. I don't know if you've ever heard of the fact that in today's modern universities, there are courses taught about the history of religion. Those courses in the history of religion teach that along with the evolution of mankind from lower forms of life and the gradual upward progress of the human race, man is also evolving religiously. When he was over here at the beginning of the evolutionary process, he didn't know very much. And he couldn't explain how it rained and why thunder rolled through the heavens. And so he started talking in terms of gods who did this. 
But as man proceeds on an upward course where he gets better and better as time goes on, he gets more sophisticated and complicated ideas of religion. So that the Bible is really nothing else but a book which explains to us the religion of people in the early stages of their evolutionary development until about 2,000 years ago. But we have gradually come to outgrow all our need of religion. And that's the basis, of course, for the great cultural struggle in our own country between an outright secular society, which the liberals are pressing for, and with whom the churches are cooperating. An outright secular society in which God is ruled out. That's the extreme position. I have a quote here which I just came across the other day in a book called Gospel Fictions by Randall Helm. He's writing about the Gospels. This is what he says of the Gospels. Quote, the Gospels are largely fictional accounts concerning an historical figure, Jesus of Nazareth. He admits that there was a man called Jesus of Nazareth, but only because the name was discovered in some old Roman records of the reign of Pontius Pilate. So they are fictional accounts concerning the historical figure, Jesus of Nazareth, intended to create a life in... Yeah, man, I've got to read my own writing here. In harmony... No. Oh, yes. To create a life in harmony with his own understanding of his nature. That's what the Bible is. A, fic a fictional account of some historical figure called Jesus of Nazareth, which has as its intent to help us live a life in harmony with our nature. That is, live a life in which I can attain for myself, apart from any other consideration, the highest and greatest happiness. It's over here. The churches are teaching you. Now, I don't, I don't want to leave you with the impression as if this is something that's far removed from us. I don't happen to know. I'm not saying there isn't. But I don't happen to know a seminary in this country that isn't somewhere on this line. And I am acquainted with the writings of the professors of quite a few of them, even the conservative Presbyterian and Reformed seminaries. Maybe they're so conservative that they still maintain that they believe in the infallibility of Scripture and so on and so forth. But when it comes to the Scriptures, they apply higher critical methods to understanding them. Let me give you a few examples. Some, for example, conservative scholars hold to the fact that prior to the four gospel narratives, there were old documents in circulation, old documents in circulation that had been written about the life and miracles of Jesus, 
And that Matthew and Mark and Luke, not so much John maybe, because he himself says he writes about the things of which he was an eyewitness, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke at least were not the men whom God used to write the gospel narratives, but were simply editors who brought together all these manuscripts and wove these different manuscripts in one continuous narrative form, making their own comments here and there along the way with the purpose of establishing the life of Jesus Christ in some kind of a coherent whole. No inspiration, although if you ask them, do you believe in inspiration? Oh, yes, 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 by all means. But that's how the Gospels came into existence. Same thing with the first five books of of, uh, the Old Testament. Although that theory has been modified greatly in recent years, it originated with the idea that at least four men are responsible for writing the first five books of the Bible, and Moses was not one of them. In fact, one part of those first five books was written as late as after or during the captivity. Isaiah, it was always said, was written by at least two men, and now some claim as many as four or five, none of whom was Isaiah. Why? Well, because Isaiah has all kinds of prophecies, and how could a man, before the event happened, predict that that would take place as the return from captivity. Some take the position that the gospel narratives are simply evangelistic tools. That they were written for purposes of evangelism. Mark wrote his gospel to bring the gospel to the Romans. Matthew wrote his gospel to make the life and ministry of Jesus suitable to the Jews. But at the same time, it was the evangelistic purposes of the church which controlled the writing of the gospel narratives. All kinds of theories. Every time a new book comes out, uh, somebody else has a new theory. The latest method of interpretation of Scripture is called the eschatological method. That Scripture is written in such a way that it, I don't know this, how exactly to put this, that it sort of reaches out to the end of the age when Christ shall come again and there shall be a new heavens and a new earth. So that the injunctions of Scripture are not applicable to us in our present life, but are only reflections of how things will be when all things are made new. So, we can have women in office, even though the Scriptures forbid it, because that's an early form of the structure of the church, but really the Scriptures are intended to reach out toward the ideal of heaven, when apparently... Men and women will be office bearers in heaven, I guess. I don't know. I don't think there will be office bearers in heaven, but be that as it may, that's sort of ideas. When I was studying for my master's in, in, in uh, 
Calvin Seminary, we were t- I was taking a course in the Gospel of John. And we were supposedly uh, uh, exegeting the passage in John 2 of Jesus cleansing the temple. And we were supposed to uh, say what that meant. And in the course of the discussion, I, I contributed this idea that what Paul wrote in Colossians shed some light on this passage. and We ought to go there and look at Colossians. The professor gasped. Oh, can't do that. We're not dealing with the, and here's all the jargon, of course. We're not dealing with the corpus of Pauline literature. We're dealing with Johannine literature. We've got to interpret John in the light of John. Paul hasn't got anything to say about what John meant. No, I suppose. But isn't the Holy Spirit got the right to say what John meant and what Paul meant? And that the two harmonize? That seems to have escaped their attention entirely. So where do you get your information then about how to interpret John? Well, the answer the professor gave was this. You've got to steep yourself in old rabbinic writings and you've got to know the Midrash and all these books which Hebrew scholars composed prior to the coming of Christ. Because John knew all that stuff, and John is writing from the viewpoint of all this huge mass of rabbinic literature. I said to the man, i got to make two sermons a week, man. I haven't got time to read reams and reams of rabbinic literature. If I have to do that to understand John, I'll never preach a sermon on John in my whole life. But you see, the point is, John's not clear. You have to have scholars who are fully acquainted with the whole body of rabbinic literature, I guess, in order to understand the simple yet profound statements of the Apostle John. That's how the attacks against Scripture are made. There's one more that's extremely important, and that is this, that although the Scriptures are inspired, and I'm talking now about this end of the spectrum, although the Scriptures are inspired, nevertheless, These men wrote out of their own cultural situations and were affected by their own cultural situations so that the views of the world and the views of geography and astronomy that prevailed in the day when these scriptures were written are incorporated in the scriptures. Why does it say in Joshua that the sun and the moon stood still at the prayer of Joshua. When today we know that the sun and moon don't move, but the earth spins on its axis. And so that's supposed to be proof, mind you, that erroneous and incorrect notions of society and of geography and astronomy and culture are incorporated into the Scriptures. And that idea is used to justify homosexuality. Oh, yes. Paul maybe wrote against that in Romans 1, but that was his day. And he was writing from the perspective of his culture when sodomy was openly practiced among the Romans. But they don't apply to today. 
And so you go right down the line. Whatever the church doesn't feel like anymore practicing, well, that belongs to ancient times and is a part of ancient culture. And it's only the reflection of the personal opinions of the men who are the authors of Scripture. Vicious, unprincipled attacks against the Word of God, which deny Scripture's unity, deny Scripture's perspicuity, deny Scripture's authority, and leave the believer with a rag in his hand instead of a beautiful portrait of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why, why are these so appealing? They are so appealing, I tell you, for one reason only, and that is this. If you don't want to go along with these modern views, you're going to insist that the Scriptures are literally, word for word, the Word of God. All scholarship in today's ecclesiastical world is closed to you. The prestigious scholarly journals, the publishers of religious material, the conferences that are held all over the country on various aspects of the study of Scripture are closed because there's no room for you. In order to get into that kind of environment, into the circle of scholars, you have to buy into these theories. And you have to engage with those who promote them on their level. Well, my answer to all that is just simply this. If that's scholarship, if that is true scholarship, God deliver us from scholarship. It's destructive of faith. I guess I get a little bit agitated about this. I absolutely despise this stuff with the whole of my being. I know it comes subtly. I know it comes underhandedly. I know that it's deceptive. After all, they say, we don't practice foot washing anymore as Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. Our women don't wear veils to church, much less hats. They don't cover their heads anymore, as Paul speaks of it in his letter to the Corinthians. So there you've got it. There you've got precepts of the Scriptures to which we don't hold anymore. What can possibly be the objection then when we carry that a step or two further? Do you really believe, they say, from their heights of profoundest wisdom, that the sun and the moon stood still in the heavens? You believe that? Was the solar system constructed in those days in a different way than it is now? Mockingly, they say, when did the change take place? And so they introduce into the church their 
vicious attacks against the scriptures. But I tell you this. You let yourself be affected by that stuff. You lose the word of God. If you have to have the knowledge that these, quote, scholars have of all kinds of other literature, in order to understand the word of God, how can you and I, simple Christians, how can our children pick up the Bible and read it and say to themselves, God says this, how can they do it? They can't. The Bible is taken out of the hands of the people of God just as effectively as Rome took it out of the hands of the believers prior to the Reformation. That's why Luther said, the Bible is clear. The literal meaning of Scripture is its true meaning. And anyone with the Spirit of Christ can understand it. But that brings me to what I want to say, and I have to say this. We come to the Scriptures in faith. It's the only way. Just faith. Now, I'd like to talk a little bit with you tonight about what faith is from this point of view. When we come to the Scriptures in faith, We believe that the scriptures are the infallibly inspired word of God without error. We believe that. Why do we believe it? Because the scriptures themselves say it's true. We are accused of arguing in a circle when we use that argumentation. How do you know that what the scriptures say is true? Well, the scriptures are infallible. How do you know they're infallible? Well, the scriptures say God wrote it. How do you know that God wrote it? Well, the scriptures say God wrote it. You're arguing in a circle. I don't believe that. I don't happen to believe that. I don't happen to believe that that's arguing in a circle at all. The first time... When I was young, I picked up a copy of Calvin's Institutes. I didn't have the foggiest notion of what it was. And I wondered who wrote that massive tome that it was so hard to plow through. So I turned to the front and I saw there, John Calvin. Now, I didn't stand there and say, prove to me that John Calvin wrote this. If I had gone to my dad and said, how do I know John Calvin wrote this? I know John Calvin was the great Genevan reformer. But I've got to have proof that he wrote this. Give me the proof for it. My father would have said to me, well, it's in the inside cover, man. Look, look. Yeah, but how can I trust it? Well, if you can't trust that, you can't trust anything in this world. When the front page says John Calvin wrote it, I believe that. That's not arguing in a circle. When the Bible says God wrote this, that's not arguing in in a circle to say I believe it. The only one who needs proof outside of the fact that the scriptures themselves say it is the man who has ruled God out of the picture to begin with. Because he's an enemy of God and he hates God and he hates his word. 
and ruling God out, now he comes and he says to me, prove it, prove it. My response to such a man is simply this. If you don't believe what scripture says, I'm sorry, but there isn't any kind of proof in all God's world that's going to convince you. Not if the proof of scripture itself won't do. Now that's what faith is. Faith is not just the acceptance of something which cannot be proved. Faith puts the believer in abiding union with Christ. Don't you see? Faith is a personal knowledge of Christ. That's why Article 4 is in the Belgic Confession. I know Christ. I know him personally. I've met him. I've talked with him. He's talked to me. And if somebody comes and says to me, how do you prove that this is the word of Christ? I say, well, he told me that he was going to write me a letter. And here it is. That's proof that you cannot gainsay. Let me put it on the level of a purely earthly illustration. If I'm gone from my wife and family for three weeks or three years, God forbid, and I get a letter from my wife, and she forgot to sign it, and I read it, and somebody says to me, you can't prove that that's your wife's letter. It's a forgery. Somebody else wrote that. How are you going to prove it that... That your wife wrote that letter. I don't have any proof in the letter itself that she wrote it other than the fact that I know her and I know her handwriting and I know how she talks and I know how she writes letters and she writes about things that she and I both know about nobody else does. There isn't a doubt in all my soul that she wrote that letter, whether she signed it or not, because I know her. And that's faith. Faith that knows Christ says, of course he wrote that. Of course he wrote it. This is the way he would talk. This is the letter that he wrote to his bridegroom, to his bride as her bridegroom. In it he tells of his love for her and what he did for her and what he promises to do for her. It's so unmistakable because I know him and I know this is the way he would write and this is the way he would talk and these are the things I want to know and need to know and all your arguments in the world can't shake it because by faith I know Christ and that kind of knowledge no one can overthrow. It's the rock of faith. If so... It's kind of a, a, an above-knowledge, reasonable, rational proof sort of a thing. If I'm standing on the corner waiting for a bus, and the temperature is about 36 degrees, and it's pouring pitchforks and hammer handles, and I'm wet to the skin and shivering cold, and wholly miserable, and someone comes up to me and says to me, Oh, you think it's raining? I have my umbrella up. Think it's raining? Yeah. Prove to me that it's raining. Am I going to 
How am I going to prove it to him? All I can say to the man is, look, Buster, if you can't tell it's raining, I don't know what kind of proof I'm going to be able to offer to you that will convince you you're some disillusioned fool. And I, I would only say that if I could restrain myself from popping him in the nose. So it is when the believer comes with the word of God. Somebody says to him, prove it's the word of God to me. The believer says, how am I going to prove it? It's, it's the love letter from my bridegroom. That's what it is. I know him, and therefore I know that this is his letter to me. And if you can't understand that, then I don't know what kind of proof I can bring. There isn't any. There isn't any, because it's the proof of faith, you see. If somebody had come to Adam in paradise and said to Adam before he fell, prove to me that there is a God, what do you suppose Adam would have said? Man, are you crazy? Listen to the birds. Look at the trees. Look at the flowers. Look all about you at this marvelous, glorious creation all of which speaks a loud doxology of praise to God. And you're asking me to prove that there is a God? If you can't see it, if it isn't overwhelming proof by the very nature of the creation itself, there isn't any proof that's going to prove it to you. That's the believer's proof of Scripture. And so he comes to the unbeliever and he says, I'm not going to spend time here as all these other people in all these other seminaries do, sitting down and engaging in all kinds of rational debate concerning the proof outside of the Bible itself that this is indeed infallibly inspired. And I'm going to call proof from the ends of the earth and we're going to consult ancient literature and all the rest in order to prove that the Bible is the word of God. I'm not going to do it. This is the Word of God. That's what we say to people. Believe it and go to heaven. Deny it and go to hell. That's all. It's authoritative. God says, thus saith the Lord. Right here. You either believe that and be saved or disbelieve it. And you're lost. That's the kind of book it is. The believer says... And he comes to the Scriptures. Ah, my Lord and my God, because faith leads him from the Scriptures to Christ himself. I don't have any truck for Billy Graham's theology, but once he had it right, it was in the days when the God is dead theology was popular. And one nosy newsman, as most newsmen are, and women worse yet, said to Billy Graham, Prove to me that God is not dead. Well, says Billy Graham, I know he's not dead. I talked with him yet this morning. That's the proof of faith. That's what Jesus means when in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, he says to that rich man in hell who needed proof, or who thought his brothers that were still living needed proof. They have Moses and the prophets. The scriptures, let them hear them. No, 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 Father Abraham, that, that won't do. That's not enough. If only Lazarus would go back 
Then they would see a ghost. Then they would believe. And Abraham says, no. If they will not believe Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded, though one should rise from the dead. If they won't bow in faith before the Scriptures, there isn't any proof in heaven or on earth that's going to convince them. Why not? Because they're sinners. They hate God and hate His truth. And only faith can wrench the sinner away from the blindness and horror of his unbelief and place him in abiding communion with Christ who loves him and who wrote him this gloriously beautiful letter. That's the believer's approach. doesn't need proof. You don't need proof when you talk with unbelief. All you need is the Bible. And if they don't want the Bible, you're done. There isn't anything else to do. That's the power of faith that God has given to you and to me. Let us pray together. Lord our God, what would we ever do without the Scriptures? And what would we ever do if we could not believe as we do that they are thy word to us? We who struggle in this world of sin and darkness, we who have no hope either in this world or in ourselves, we who are burdened with the crushing burdens of sin and suffering and affliction, what would we do without thy word? Thou dost give us thy word as a priceless treasure, explaining to us all that happens according to thy eternal purpose, making known to us the mysteries of thy will and the secrets of thy counsel, showing what thou hast done in Jesus Christ and always telling us of thy great love for us, which is past finding out, and of Christ, whom thou hast sent to make us thy people. We understand everything because thou hast told us. In a world filled with hopelessness, we live by hope. In a world dark with a lie, we know the truth. In a world that wallows in sin, we seek holiness. In a world that blasphemes thy name, we confess, thou art our God. All because we have the scriptures. May we be faithful to them, and through them may we know Thee and Thy Son Christ, and bless and praise Thy name forever. Lord, forgive our sins. For Jesus' sake, amen. Thank you for listening to this message. 
It is our hope that it was edifying to you. Please subscribe to our podcast. We publish daily meditations, Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day sermons on Wednesdays, and topical podcasts on Fridays. You can find more information about us at our website, hopeprchurch.org, and you can email us with any questions or feedback at hoperwc at gmail.com. Thank you.